I want, to, uh, I want to begin by saying if you are new and you are uh, watching this message on video, one of the things that we do uh, to supplement the teaching ministry is the use of, of video. And uh, with being a multi-site church, we've got five services every weekend, and this is one of the ways that we occasionally will uh, uh, utilize the technology in order to get the teaching ministry across and for all of our services and both campuses to, uh, to hear the same message, which we are doing this weekend. And the message this weekend is, um, it's not so much a break from our series on, uh, from 1 John as it is the application of our series in 1 John, a letter that is largely about assurance of salvation. How can I know if I'm actually saved or not? And this message is really primarily for those of you who, like me, grew up with Christianity. Now that might not be you uh, specifically, but the principles that I'm talking about apply across the board, and it might help you understand some of these weird Christians who grew up with Christianity. It's all we've known all of our life, and uh, this will help you uh, understand some of your brothers and sisters But if you are here and you can't remember a time when you didn't know about Jesus, you can't remember a time when somebody wasn't talking to you about God, you can't remember a time when uh, the the Ten Commandments were in some way being invoked and indeed perhaps punished upon you growing up, then this message is for you. Perhaps you, like me, can't remember when you weren't going to church, when you weren't praying before you ate, when you weren't praying before you went to bed. It has been a part of your life from the beginning. Uh, What I want to do is I want to address very specifically one of the pervasive problems that those who grow up with Christianity have. I have talked to so many people about this. I was a youth pastor for five years. 21 years as a pastor overall, and I have heard this over and over and over again. I know that this is a very common problem. I look out and I see, uh, I see children who are growing up in the church and no doubt will struggle in some ways with this very same issue. Now, I'm calling this person the early converted. Okay, the early converted. I want to distinguish them from the early professing, and there are many people that profess to be Christians when they are children. Uh, I'm also distinguishing them from uh, the early involved. Many people grow up going to vacation Bible school or having some loosely religious kind of uh, influence in terms of Christianity upon their life. I'm talking about those that are actually regenerate, those who as children or teenagers grew up in the church and as a result of that actually did convert to Jesus, they actually did become his disciple, the Holy Spirit dwells within them, the actually saved. And I want you to realize that I am speaking about this as an insider. This message is largely a testimony from my own life. I grew up in a Christian home. I cannot remember a time when I was not 
going to church every single weekend. My family growing up, we had a certain area we sat in every single weekend. There are some of you like that. You know who you are. You have your row. You have your uh, seat. That's where you go. The DeWitts had their row. We had our seat. We were there every weekend. And this is before the days of children's church and all the rest. I mean, we were in big church from the beginning. No toys to play with. No fun at all. We're in church. We don't smile. We don't have fun. It's church. You've got to be serious all the time. That was my life. I remember professing faith in Jesus when I was six years old. And I looked to an experience I had with my dad in our family room where I, it was after church on a Sunday, I went home, I knelt at that couch in the family room with my dad. I prayed to receive Jesus as my Savior. And I looked to that moment, as best I can tell, as the time when my actual spiritual life began, where I was justified, I was uh, declared a child of God. It was that six-year-old experience with my dad. Over the years, though, I grew up in the church. I grew up going to Sunday school every single week. I grew up with flannel graph. Many of you might know what flannel graph is. I grew up with flannel graph. I grew up going to youth ministry, and we were not allowed to miss youth ministry. It didn't matter what it was, sports or otherwise, the coach was told my son will not be involved in that. He's got to go and he's got to be a part of youth ministry. Uh, youth group. I grew up that way. I mean, it was the DeWitts went to church. We did not miss. It didn't matter if there was a snowstorm. Literally, I remember growing up plowing through snowbanks on the road in the car, blasting through them on the way to church uh, during the blizzard because the DeWitts went to church. I grew up going to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night prayer meeting in the summer when there wasn't a wana sitting next to my dad. My dad sometimes would go do the uh, Tuesday night visitation. Some of you might remember that. He would take me along. I hated it. <laughs> Knocking on doors of people I didn't know and saying, hey, you know, and my, I just sat there quietly, didn't say anything, scared to death. But I remember doing that growing up. I remember my dad was a, was a deacon in the church. And so Lots of Sunday nights, they'd have these meetings after church, and there we are running around the church waiting for whatever meeting about whatever crisis in the church, you know, had to be dealt with right away. So we were there before for a meeting. We were there after for a meeting. We were there all the time. That was my life growing up. Along with this, in my teenage years, I began a very serious struggle with whether I was actually saved. And I, when I say struggle, I mean struggle. I mean terror. I, I remember nights laying in bed and just my, my, my heart pounding in my chest and I was so afraid that I would die and that I would find out that I was a pretender. Or I often would look back and I'd think, what if I didn't say the prayer right when I was six? Like I missed, I, I forgot something, or I didn't say it right. Or what if I wasn't sincere enough in the saying of it? Like God requires you to be 95% sincere, and I was only 92% sincere, and I'm actually not saved. I just think I'm saved, but I'm not actually saved. 
And I literally was terrified of this. This struggle went all the way into seminary. I'm studying for the ministry. And I'm afraid, wondering if I'm actually saved or not. Now, when you talk about children, and I appreciate the sound effects, when I talk about children, and whenever you talk about children, there always is some challenge, isn't there, with what is going on in the maturing of that child as they come to understand their own morality and guilt and sin, and we talk to them about Jesus, and, and what do they actually understand, and what are they getting, and there's, there's always... There's ambiguity there when you're talking about a child. And this, of course, has led to all kinds of controversies and struggles in the church regarding children and what it means for them to be saved. And I I honestly believe that part of even the controversies about infant baptism, for example, relate largely to the strong desire that parents have for their kids to be saved. And I've heard stories about in in, uh, circles that practice infant baptism where grandparents are urging the parents to quickly get those kids baptized lest something happen. And if they're not baptized, well, then they're not saved. And, you know, obviously we don't want that. Even Jonathan Edwards, the eminent American theologian, got involved in a controversy in his own church, a church that had experienced the Great Awakening, which is one of the great spiritual moments in all of American history. In spite of that, years after that, gets involved in a controversy about children and their faith and is kicked out of his church. One of the great heroes of American Christianity, is the pastor is kicked out of his church. Still don't get that. Tremendous ministries have developed from a belief that children can be saved. An example of this is Child Evangelism Fellowship, an organization that I know quite well, which back in 1937, their founder heard or read a quote by Charles Spurgeon, and here's the quote, a child of five, if properly instructed, can as truly believe and be regenerated as an adult. And uh, their founder, a man by the name of Jesse Oberholzer, he thought to himself, if that is true, then I'm going to spend my whole life trying to reach children. And he began Child Evangelism Fellowship, and over these years, they have literally reached hundreds of thousands, if not millions of children, with the gospel of Christ. So, when we're talking about childhood faith, and what it means to come to faith as a child, we certainly believe that children can. I mean, the Bible itself has examples of childhood faith. To give you some examples of, of this, we have Samuel, Timothy, David the shepherd boy, Mary, the mother of Jesus, King Josiah, Daniel, and of course, Jesus himself, who even at age 12 had such an awareness spiritually that he said, I must be in my father's house. If you remember the story when his parents couldn't find him and every child loves that, loves that story. Parents, not as much. Now here at Bethel, to be clear, we take children and the ministry to children very seriously. We pour tremendous resources into that. We have tons of volunteers who serve in our children's ministries. We love our children and we, we believe they can come to faith, genuine saving faith, and become disciples of Christ. And we love them very much. But in spite of that, what we all have to acknowledge, I think, is that there are unique 
struggles in understanding the development of a child and then the spiritual development of a child and how the gospel takes root and begins to produce transformation in their life. How does a child begin to grow in their awareness of guilt? How do they come to understand what it means that Jesus died in their place? And what does it mean for a child to have a personal faith in Christ? And I've talked with so many, and I, of course, this is my background, know even my own friends uh, growing up, that so many people grow up in the church, and when they turn 18, they go to university or whatever, and they never darken the door of a church again. And these are the same kids that were going forward at the revivals, and they were involved in all the things, and, and prayed the prayer, and did all the rest, and they have no care or concern for Christ to this day. And so clearly, we are in a difficult area when you talk about children. And I want to zero in on one aspect of this, and it's what First John is most specifically speaking to, and that is assurance of salvation. So let me give you, and, and again, I'm not so much expositing a text as applying what we've heard in First John to this area uh, of the Christian life, but I want to talk about some of the faith tendencies of those that are converted early in their life, and I have a few of them. Here's the first. Very commonly, there is a struggle with assurance of salvation, and they have a low assurance, a low confidence that they're actually saved. Now, I remember uh, my, my, my friend, Matt Hunley, uh, when he was in high school, he was always sort of a jokester. And in the, the churches that I grew up in, they would often ask you to, to share your testimony. Okay, have you heard this? We'd like for you to share your testimony. There's nothing wrong with sharing your testimony, but you better have a good one. So my, my, uh, my buddy, Matt, uh, one time was asked to share his testimony. And so he said, well, I could tell you about years of uh, drugs and sex and rock and roll. But then God saved me at the age of six. <laughs> and that's humorous, but it actually puts uh, a focus on one of the realities of those that are early converted, and, and that is that the early converted cannot look back on their testimony or in their story and see this radical change of life, like people who are saved later in their, in their adulthood. Now, to be clear, Scripture says there is no difference in, the, in terms of the standing before God between uh, my daughter, who's three months old, and the worst pagan that you can find who's 35 and has done it for 20 years. All of us stand as condemned before God. There is none righteous. There is no, no, no not one. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So there's no sort of grades in terms of sin and before a holy God. We are all lost, and he is the only one that is, is holy. Uh, so we're all condemned equally. But there is a difference for the person who comes to faith as an adult, because most likely they have had a lot of years for that depravity to flower and to show itself. They've had a lot of years to do a lot of things that they would later regret. Whereas the child who grows up in 
in the church, comes to faith uh, early in life, does not have the same kind of expressions of depravity that the adult convert has. Now you say, well, isn't that great? And you know what? In a sense, it is. I read one author this week who said, I want my child to have a very boring testimony. Came to faith as a child and walked with Jesus ever since. Uh, In fact, maybe you can relate to this. Uh, If you've ever been asked to give your testimony, if you were early converted, I'll bet you thought to yourself when somebody said, hey, give your testimony uh, to us, you thought, what testimony? I grew up up in a Christian home. Came to faith when I was seven. La, 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 right? And sometimes you almost want to, you know, juice it up with some salacious sin. Well, then when I was 11... But it all feels kind of, you know, flat. I remember uh, when I was in college, I went to a church and they had this Saturday night uh, kind of outreach thing that they'd have people share their testimony. And they asked me to share my testimony one Saturday night. Well, it happened to be the week after Franklin Graham was there to share his testimony, who wrote the book Rebel Without a Cause, you know, a whole book about this radical change in his life. I'm up next. I made up three sins just to make it sound good. No, I didn't, lest that be a sin of lying right there. So the early convert comes to faith in Jesus as a a young person. And often what happens then is that as the memory of that event fades... Like if you were me, six, I remember it barely. Do I remember what I said? Do I remember that? No, I don't. I was six. That was a long time ago. Not telling you how long, but a long time ago. As the memory fades, what can often happen is in the heart of the early convert, there is this, did I, what, what, what was that all about again? And this moment that, could and should be decisive and always remembered, uh, fades into the, into the distance. As opposed to some of you who come to faith in Christ when you're 35, and you went to IU, but you partied at Purdue, and then you hit the bars for 20 years in northwest Indiana, and then somebody shared Jesus with you, and you had this radical come to faith in Jesus thing. You will never forget the difference that Jesus made in the practical moral aspects of your life and it actually helps you know that you were saved how else do you explain the big change in my life the early convert doesn't have that doesn't have that second thing that young people that grow up in the church often will struggle with is they will have a dissatisfaction with the christianity later in their life now why do i say that well think about this you grow up in the church Maybe you're at VBS when you're in third grade, you go to a one or something like that, you pray to receive Jesus as your Savior, you're sincere, you want to follow Jesus with your life. You look around and there's Mrs. Jones and Mr. Smith and, and, uh, and uh, Mr. Johnson, they're your Sunday school teachers, they're people you look up to, you always said Mr. to them. Well, then you get older and you find out when you're 17 that Mr. Jones and Mrs. Smith were sleeping together. And Mr. Johnson, at the last business meeting of the church, stood up and accused um, 
Mr. Smith of dividing the church and being a rascal. And everyone's talking about it. And you think to yourself, what, 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 I, what is going on? Or you perceive in your parents abject hypocrisy. Where they are one way on Sunday and the rest of the week, you know what they're actually like. And there's no gospel grace, there's no Christianity in the home, and yet they pretend that they're the big, great Christians. And you look around at your friends in the youth group, and uh, the, three of, the three that everyone looks up to, you happen to know, are partying on Friday night. But nobody but you knows, or the church doesn't know, their parents don't know. And you look around at the whole thing, and you can, it's easy to, to look at the church and say, a bunch of hypocrites. In fact, I'm looking at a few of them right now. Wait a second, we're all hypocrites, aren't we? Okay. But when you're young, you think everyone's wonderful, right? Everyone is Mrs. Smith teaching third grade Sunday school. Hasn't thought about sin in 20 years. A second thing that happens for young people is that eventually they, have, they realize that to be a disciple of Christ is going to cost them. When you are in third grade in Awana and you pray to receive Jesus as your Savior, the cost is minimal, isn't it? You go home, everyone applauds, everyone's excited. In fact, there's no cost. It's all blessing, you know. They take you out for ice cream or something. Like, this Christianity thing's fantastic. It's ice cream. It's people applauding me. Grandma and Grandpa wrote me a nice note, put money in it. Love it. But eventually, that kid becomes a uh, freshman in college. Or better, or maybe 16 at the public high school. And now the temptations and the opportunities are beginning to circle in ways that when they're in third grade aren't even in the picture. And all of a sudden, it dawns on them. There comes a crisis of faith where they realize, wait a second, if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, which is the commitment that I made when I was a child, you mean I can't do that? And the that is really something you want to do. Or I can't be a part of that whole crowd. I really want to be a part of that whole crowd. And there is this like, I'm not so sure I'm excited about this anymore. I may want to rethink this commitment that I made to Jesus. Because the cost of being a follower is beginning to be felt by them for the very first time. A third dissatisfaction, I think, is... A sense when you get older about being a, being a Christian that nothing's going on. Okay? Nothing's going on. And what I mean by that is that when you're at flannel graph stage, okay, and flannel graph, some of you are like, what is he talking about? It's, it's sort of old school, all right? This is before uh, screens and PowerPoint and video and all the rest. I mean, this is like back when we watched TV by candlelight. We're going way back. Uh, some of you get that later. Um, it was just a board that they had these little figures. They'd put them up, and they would tell you stories. And the stories that kids love are the stories where there is a hero who stands for God, right? And so we tell stories about Daniel in the lion's den. And you imagine yourself as Daniel in the lion's den. And you think, I'm going to someday, I'm going to stand up to the lions, and I'm going to, oh. Or David and Goliath. What kid doesn't love the story of David and Goliath? They hear it 15 times uh, every year probably. 
the story of David and Goliath and, you know, little David who took on Goliath and he won the big victory and every little boy says to himself, I'm going to be David and goes and finds a sling at home and throws rocks around the house, right? Someday I'm going to be David. But then you get to be when you're 16 or 17 and uh, it doesn't seem like you've got a lion anywhere. And where's Goliath? I mean, I'm just doing life now. I go to school. I got my stupid brother and sister to deal with. I'm just like getting, I'm just, it's, I I don't know. I thought it'd be like this big dramatic thing. I mean, Jim Elliott, Aka Indians, you know, this whole, what's going on? And it can be very dissatisfying. A third uh, tendency for those that are struggling with this is there develops then a desire to show everybody and primarily God and themselves that they really mean it. They really mean it. I think this waning assurance, and this is part of my story, it, it leads to guilt. Like, you say things like, something is terribly wrong, and no one around here seems to be struggling like I am. They all seem to be totally confident that they're right with God, and they're going to go to heaven, and yet I'm the one laying in bed, my heart pounding, wondering if I'm actually saved. What's the deal? Why do I feel the way that I do? And in my own experience, and I've seen this in other, in other people, the early convert then tries to gain assurance by proving that they really mean it. Now, if there's one example of this more than anything else, here it is. And I'll bet almost every person that grew up in the church, you can relate to this. I prayed the sinner's prayer thousands of times, I think. Do you know what I mean by that? Dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that before you. I ask God that you would forgive my sins. I believe Jesus died for me. I accept the gift of eternal life. Amen. My church I went to, their altar call every week almost, and you know, we had youth events, and every youth event was a pray to receive Jesus as your Savior. I think I prayed almost every time, just in case the one before was not the one that actually stuck. Are you with me? So just to be sure that I'm going to heaven, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to pray this. I walked the aisle over and over and over again. I was the kind of kid that, I mean, if they said, hey, you know, if you just want to make sure that you're going to heaven, down I went. I want to make sure I'm going to heaven. So the evangelists, they, they liked people like us. So, you know, there's one more and there's one more. And that was me. I, I wanted to know that I was actually saved. And as I've said, I didn't know that. I struggled with it so much. And so I prayed the prayer over and over again. I saw a statistic this week. A 2011 Barna survey showed that 50% of Americans have prayed the sinner's prayer at one time in their life. And that could be watching Billy Graham or some, you know, 50%. Many of them convinced that they are going to heaven in spite of the fact that they never read their Bible, they rarely attend church, and they have no real spiritual interest in following Jesus at all. 50%, 50%, that's a, that's a pretty surprising statistic, isn't it? I think it is. A second thing is they'll recommit their life to Jesus. Now, I grew up in a church where there were certain stages that you had to go through. First, you, had, you became a Christian. And then later on, it was very important that you would rededicate your life to Jesus. 
And most of us did it at camp every summer, right? We'd rededicate our life to Jesus, get all fired up, come home, and within three days it was pretty much back to the same. But we had that mountaintop experience. We could always look back to it. We felt good about it. We must be going to heaven uh, because uh, we, we recommitted our life to Christ. Third, oftentimes when we're struggling with assurance of our salvation, we will try to be radical for Jesus. Have you seen this? This is the kind of person who says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to Moody Bible Institute. That's what I'm going to do. And after I get my degree in uh, ministry to cannibals, I'm going to Sri Lanka, and there's a tribe there, and they eat people, and I'm going to reach them for Jesus, and then I'm going to establish a Bible college there, and we're going to plant five churches there, and uh, we're going to we're going to do outreach there, and we're going to they're not going to eat people anymore. We're bringing them Jesus. I mean, we're, I'm going to be rat. You all people, you're all just normal. I'm a radical for Jesus. Why can't you be radical like me? And I've heard this kind of thing, and in my heart, it sounds it doesn't ring true to me. Oftentimes. It's like I'm trying to convince you how spiritual I am, which is really a way of convincing me how spiritual I am, in the hopes that maybe God will see me this way. I must be saved. Look how radical for Jesus I am. Y'all aren't saved. I am. See that? I don't know if you've noticed this sometimes in people. To show you how like schizo this whole thing is, I've showed you this before over the years at the church. I'm going to show it to you again. This is the back page of the Bible that I grew up with. Schofield edition, King James Bible, amen. That was a joke. Do you know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Apparently none of you grew up in the church. Because in my era there was only one Bible and it was the Schofield King James. All right, That's what I grew up with. I must be going to heaven. I grew up with the King James Bible. All right, Uh, here we have the back page of my Bible. I've shown this to you before, I'll show it to you again. These are in chronological order. Notice the Romans road. That was the first thing I wrote in the back of my Bible. It was so that I would be ready to lead people to Jesus. If I ever had an opportunity, you had to take them down the Romans road. Verses that led people to faith in Jesus, okay? So there I am, concerned about evangelism. Secondly, here I am in one of my go-forward experiences. November 7th, 1984, Bible conference at Cedar Heights Baptist Church. Steve DeWitt dedicated his life to the will of God, whether it be full or part-time Christian service. And I remember that night, it was one of these altar calls where it was like 15 stanzas of I Surrender All. And about the 13th, he said, if anybody here was willing to say, no matter what, I don't know if God wants me in ministry or not, but I'm willing to go anyway. Come on forward. And and there I'm standing like, well, I, I guess that's me. So down I went I got my Bible, I wrote it in my Bible, 1984, there you have it. January 20th, 1985, two months later, I'm right back into my despair. Am I saved or not? And somebody told me, if you want to know that you're saved, you ask Jesus and then you put a stake in it. What you mean by what that meant is you you wrote it down. So I thought, I'm going to write it down. So one more time, I prayed to receive Jesus as my Savior And I wrote it down just to make sure that I was actually saved. And I can tell you, I struggled with assurance of my salvation for 
probably seven more years after all of this that you see here. Big time struggle in my life. Finally, I think there is with the early converted a nagging question. Is this whole thing really true? Is this whole thing really true? Like late at night when nobody's watching, when you're laying in bed, you're kind of wondering, what if I grew up in a Muslim house? Would I just be a Muslim because I'm just, you know, I grew up in a Christian house, so I'm just believing what my parents tell me, and that's the only reason it's true is because my parents tell me it's true? What if it's not actually true? Am I just being brainwashed by my church and my parents? What if I'm, what if I'm making all these commitments and there really isn't a God? Am I just a kid believing whatever? Is this thing really true? Now, I think there are reasons that early converts struggle in this way. And clearly, it's something that I have spent time analyzing in my own life. And I want to share these with you. Here's one reason it's a big-time struggle. Is the difference between the way a child thinks and the way an adult thinks. Okay? The way a child thinks and the way an adult thinks. When you're a kid, your dad, maybe, or your mom, probably, is the greatest mom in all the world, right? My mom is the greatest mom in all the world. My older brother is the strongest guy anywhere. Children think in very concrete, like black and white. There's not nuance, there's not abstraction. It's black and it's white. So that a child can understand some things. You are a sinner. Yes, I am a sinner. Jesus died for your sins. Really? Yes. Why? So that you can be forgiven. And you can live forever. I think a child can understand that because I was a child who understood that. Okay? Fairly simple. Now, is a child going to be able to explain substitutionary atonement? I don't think so. Not, not in any depth. Is a child going to be able to explain uh, declaration of righteousness in the way that justification is taught in the Bible? Probably not. Is she going to be able to understand what it means to submit to the lordship of Jesus? To an extent, but not very much. They have a childlike faith, is one way that we say that. And it's a beautiful thing, and Jesus, of course, said, unless you have a childlike faith, you cannot be saved. So we celebrate that. It's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a wonderful and a beautiful thing, and may every child and every adult in our church have a childlike faith. Amen? Okay. But what happens then is that child matures. And as they mature, their ability to think about abstraction and nuance expands. And if their Christianity does not expand with their mind, they will look back on that simple faith of their childhood and see it as being superficial or for sure immature. So if you don't have a child that is being discipled by their parents or their church, 
to think Christianly about their world. They will arrive at a place where the faith of their childhood seems silly. And it will not feel like a big part of their life anymore. I remember thinking to myself, how do I know what I was thinking when I was six years old and prayed to receive Jesus? I was six. What did I know when I was six? Maybe I'm not saved because I don't know what I was thinking when I was six. That was one of the struggles that I had. I also think this is one reason that legalism is so attractive in churches is because if my, if my, uh, if my faith and my understanding of faith does not grow with my maturing of my mind, I will look to anything for assurance of my salvation, even man-made rules. As long as I fulfill the man-made rules, I must be good with God. And legalists are fully assured of their salvation because they've created an artificial criteria. Okay? In fact, say it, legalism is artificial assurance. You won't find any of that in 1 John. There's nothing legalistic in 1 John. It is fake, it is artificial, it's not real. But people love it. Because now I feel saved because I'm following the rules. Another thing that happens with young people is that there is what I'm calling the enlarging circle of life. Okay, the enlarging circle of life. The awareness of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, if that does not increase with their increasing scope of life, there will come a massive crisis of faith. And you all know what I'm talking about if you've been around the church or been around young people, college students, for example. Here's a graphic, I think, that explains it well. If you would put that up. Okay. Here is the life of a child. The whole scope of a child. What do they have in their life? They may have siblings. They have their family. They have their school. And hopefully they have their church. That is, that's the full world that they know, okay? They don't know about, uh, they don't know about, they're not worrying about Congress. They're not too up on uh, what's going on in the Syrian crisis uh, in the Middle East. They're not worried about that. Life is about my family, my house, my school, my church. It's a small circle. But what happens for them, happens for all of us, is that As we become young adults, we become adults, the world expands, doesn't it? And all of a sudden now, in my world, there are things that were not a part of my world when I professed faith in Jesus. And these things are complex, and they are very scintillating, and they are enticing. And we see things like, you know, all of a sudden I've got to know what money's all about, and I'm working, and I I feel pressure from friends i care what they think about my life how i wish we could just pound or there's a button to push on teenagers and say realize don't worry about the friends you're never going to talk to them again the rest of your life why do you worry about what they think young people listen to me the people that you're concerned about they don't matter anymore someday you're going to graduate from high school never see them again except one or two those are the special ones make good friends okay sex do i need to talk about that and the temptation of that, and all of a sudden, you know, the pituitary band, uh, a gland kicks in, and all of a sudden there's this whole aspect of life that it creates so much tension, especially in a Corinthian culture like our own. So we have this bigger circle of life. And 
it includes things that she never dreamed about. This child never thought about when she was six or seven and said, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus. And this leads to crisis in their life. If that circle, that smaller circle, does not expand in terms of faith to include everything else, there is massive crisis in their life. All right, I think that's helpful. Now, I want to share just a couple of special considerations, and then we're going to talk about how can early converted people have assurance of their salvation, okay? A couple special considerations. Baptism and the way that we evangelize children. We practice believer's baptism here at Bethel Church. And what that means is, is that uh, we baptize those that have professed faith in Jesus. And when it comes to children, I will tell you, this is one of the hardest areas to navigate as a church. Because with children, it's harder to discern what is real, what is parentally imposed, what is simply them doing what their friends are doing. You say, ah, it's not that hard. Yeah, try interviewing three children for baptism and you're going to come out of that experience a little bit different, okay? It is not easy uh, to do. And one of the things that... Uh, that often happens is that for, for when all your faith decisions are at a stage of life that you can't remember anymore, it actually undermines assurance of salvation down the road. And that's one reason that we make a recommendation here. It is not a rule because the Bible doesn't make it a rule and we don't want to make rules the Bible doesn't make, okay? But it is a recommendation that we wait with a child until they're at a stage of life that at the very least they can remember their baptism. You say, what age is that? I think it's a double digit. You know, I think it's a double digit. Maybe 12. But the Bible doesn't mandate that. Okay, so we don't mandate that. But it is a recommendation. They may not remember when they profess faith in Jesus, but they can remember their baptism. And that can be a very cherished memory of faith. The other thing I want to mention to you is that we have to get the gospel right with our kids. I grew up in an era when everybody asked Jesus into their heart. Maybe you've heard that. I asked Jesus into my heart. I really think that is unhelpful. And I do not think it is biblical. Okay? The Bible doesn't anywhere say, ask Jesus into your heart. Unless you want to go to Revelation, Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart, and he will come in and sup with them, and he with me. But that is a stretch. Because there's a hundred verses that say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. What is the gospel? It is trusting in Jesus and his work on the cross for your salvation. And that's what our children need to get. And so I would encourage you not to use that kind of language because it's not the gospel. Unless it is simply a kind of cliche or slogan for what actually saves. And that is putting your faith and trust in Jesus. So I think I probably did that. I put my faith and trust in Jesus when I was six. And when people said, uh, tell me your testimony, I asked Jesus into my heart when I was six. Okay? But really that has nothing to do with it. I would encourage us to get the gospel right and to just talk about trusting and believing in Jesus for salvation. I think it would help. It also keeps us from the easy step of getting children to do it. Do you want to go to hell? No. Do you want to ask Jesus into your heart and have eternal life? Yes. 
down come the balloons and the Facebook postings and the cake and all the rest. And the kids are like, this is fantastic. Right? But really, you want them to understand, I am guilty before God. Jesus died in my place. I have trusted in him for forgiveness of sins. I now have eternal life as a gift. That they can understand, and let's help them understand that. Are you with me? Okay. And let's not use unhelpful cliché. Now, with that said, how can the early converted have true assurance? And I've got to go quick here, and I'm going to do my best. But here is the big thing. All right, I've got a couple, but here's the big one. By far the most helpful thing for me in overcoming the struggle in my own life is this principle, the not now but then. I said that backwards. <laughs> the not then but now. The not then but now. I'm dyslexic. Did I mention that as well? No, I'm not, but I, I was in that moment. Not then but now. One of the big pitfalls in the way that evangelism, in my opinion, was done over these years is there was such a focus on the moment of decision. The moment that I believed. You had to know when it was. Like, what was the date? What was the time? Who was there with you when you did it? What do you mean you don't know what the date was? Are you saved? If you didn't know when it started, your salvation was highly in question. The Bible does not talk about salvation primarily as a starting point. It is a starting point. There is a beginning, there is a middle, and there is an end. I begin when I believe. I am still believing by faith as I am sanctified in the likeness of Christ. I die and I experience glorification, all of its salvation. That's why Paul calls it a, like a race. A race is not simply starting. They ran a 5K in my area today. Some people right here ran it. Got ribbons and stuff. They didn't get ribbons for starting the race. Nobody said, when did you start? The, what was your time when you started the race? Nobody cares what your time is when you started the race. A race means that you start, you run, and you end right? And salvation is the same. We begin by faith in Jesus for sure, but the whole thing is by faith. What a help this is. I remember when I was in seminary, I was in systematic theology class, struggling with assurance of my salvation. And I asked my professor a question about it. And I'll remember him. I, I, this is what, I'm going to tell you what he said. He said to me, well, Steve, let me ask you this. How do you know that you were born physically? Well, then I could ask you the same thing. How do you know that you were born physically? Well, now there's certain ways that you could go about proving this, couldn't you? Well, I probably could pull out a birth certificate that says that I was born. And then I would know that I was born. Or you could talk to your mom who no doubt remembers the experience. Just like my daughter, who may, she may wonder if she was born. I, could, I was an eyewitness to it. It's probably best that she doesn't remember the experience. But what is the ultimate proof that I was born physically? Here I am, right? I am presently alive. And if I am presently alive... 
I may not know the birth moment that my life began, but I can be confident that it did, can I? And that's what 1 John has been pounding home to us. How can I know that I'm genuinely saved? Look at what you believe. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior? Look at how you live. Is the direction of your life in obedience to Christ? Look at your loves. Do you, do you hate your brother or do you love your brother? All of these are the effects, the evidences that you are actually alive spiritually. And if you are alive spiritually, it means that at some point it started, even though you don't know the date or the time. That was such a help to me. I'm like, I mean, I right now believe Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I right now believe that he is Son of God, Savior of the world. I believe Orthodox Christian doctrine. I believe the Bible is the Bible, God's Word. I believe the whole thing. I'm not sure if it was when I was with my dad or the thousand other times I prayed to receive Jesus as my Savior. It it doesn't matter. It matters that right now I am following Christ and I can have assurance of my salvation. By the same token, I will say, you can have some past experience with Jesus. You can have written it in the back of your Bible a hundred times, every date, every time. You can walk forward in a Billy Graham crusade. Your dad can be a deacon, your grandpa a preacher. But if right now your heart is not for God, if you are walking away from God, if you are in rebellion against God, the longer that is the story of your life, the less likely it is that you're actually saved. Why? Because you don't look alive at all, spiritually. You look dead. Dead people should not have assurance that they are alive. That makes no sense, but in a way it does. Some of you are like, I'm still confused about the TV by candlelight, and now you've really confused me. The most convincing proof that we are born spiritually is that we are following Christ. And that's why I think way too many people don't struggle with assurance, and they should. The 50% of Americans that have prayed to receive Christ and yet they have no care or concern for Jesus and active in their life right now, I'm going to heaven. Why? Because I've prayed the prayer. That is not evidence of spiritual regeneration. I don't see that anywhere. That's a whole message right there. You say, well, where does the Bible teach that? I will tell you. John 15, 1 through 8. Matthew 13, 1 through 43. You can maybe write these down. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10, and the entire book of 1 John teaches that. Secondly, to have assurance of salvation, how can I do it? Submit every aspect of your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now let's go back to the graphic a second of these circles. And you see them here, right? Maybe you look back and you say, my faith was in the beginning The childlike faith. The childhood faith. My life now is bigger than this, even these circles. I got all kinds of things in there. But my faith is still at that child circle. I want to know that I'm saved. You know what you need to do? You need to take that surrender that you made when you were six to the world that you had at that time and to simply baptize your entire life into the Lordship of Christ and submit everything to Him. Submit it all to him. All the circle must be God's. 
I think there are people that, there are many people that come to this crisis, and in reality, maybe you've seen this, kids, they, they grow up in the church, and they, for, they seem to be Christians, or they're good kids, and you know, they do the want thing and all that, but then their sophomore year at Purdue, all of a sudden, there is this huge explosion, right? All of a sudden, now they're at Campus Crusade, and they're going on evangelism in Florida, and you talk to them, and they're like, what happened? You say, and they say things like, well, I just, I mean, I, my freshman year, I was a mess, a total mess. You don't even, I don't even tell you all the things I was involved in. But I went to this crusade meeting, or I went to this navigator thing, or I went to church. And man, all of a sudden, it made sense to me. And I gave my, I, man, I've, I've totally changed. Okay. Now, what has happened there? I think it is possible they just have had a dramatic renewal or repentance, but oftentimes that is when they actually have become regenerate and the Spirit of God has come with them. They were awakened to spiritual things, maybe in that Hebrews 6 sort of way. Early on they knew things. They were moral generally, but it really took root in their life. There was a crisis of faith and out comes this beautiful faith experience with Christ. So I would encourage you, you want assurance of salvation? Look into your life. What have you not surrendered? What are you still living for yourself? What are, what are, you, what are you still clinging to? And ruthlessly and just by God's grace, give that over to Christ and say, I want you to have all of me. Like I did when I was six. You had all of me, but my world was so small. My world is bigger, but I want you to have all of me again. Give your heart fully, your world, to Christ. And the last thing I would say is to realize that God is at work in you right now. Okay? He is at work in you right now. This whole boring testimony thing, there's no boring testimonies. Do you think Jesus would ever say, you have a boring testimony? Based upon what he did in order to save you? I don't think so right? I don't think so. There are no boring testimonies. We are all objects of the grace of God. We have all been saved by the precious blood of Jesus. All of us have this miraculous experience of the Holy Spirit through regeneration. All of us have become children of God by this miracle adoption where God makes us part of his family. All of us are presently experiencing eternal life. All of us have the hope that when we die, we actually will go be with God. There's nothing boring Nothing. It's all fantastic. We're just blind to it, I think. So you got, you got lions. You got Goliaths. You've got challenges. But fight the fight. Fight the good fight of faith. Run the course that God has set before you. Follow Jesus. Be bold and obedient. And you will find along the way, as you see this transformation in your life, you'll look back and you'll say, you know what? I am saved. Look at the difference Jesus has made in my life. And what a blessing it is to know that you are a child of God. Would you pray with me?